welcome, welcome everybody to the Hockey Think Tank podcast brought to you by thehockeythinktank.com, a website for all players, parents, and coaches to go to get a little bit of education and a little bit of inspiration regarding the greatest game on the planet. What an episode we have for you guys here today. We bring on current Harvard University assistant coach James Marku, as hard as that is for me to do. Uh, great guy, but James grew up in the Long Island area and played his youth hockey out that way, then went on to play his junior hockey in Waterloo in the USHL. After that, three years of hockey at UMass Amherst, where he became the career assist leader. And at five foot six, after his junior year, signed an NHL contract with the San Jose Sharks. Unfortunately, his career ended shortly because of concussion issues. And we did get into that on the podcast. But after he was done playing, started his coaching career at Milton Academy, a prep school out in the Boston area. Then he became a volunteer assistant coach for UMass, where he he went to school, then he went to Brown University, and now he is at Harvard. So awesome, awesome guy with a great journey. Very, very fun getting the chance to talk to him, one of the better guys in the game right now. But before we do get over to Jimmy Marcou, let's bring on the talent of the podcast, Jeffrey Lavecchio. Vex, what's shaking in the STL today? I'm all hopped up on quarantine life. <laughs> <laughs> self Hashtag self quarantine yeah man just uh staying at home as much as i can or going out and socially distancing myself from people if you will uh, as much as possible actually not as much as possible i am doing that i don't want to be around anyone just i feel like as a human trying to do my part and uh putting up instagram live workouts every day for people to follow me on instagram and, and work out with me um had some people ask me to do that and then uh, you know had a couple hundred people watch the first one and it got a little bigger and a bunch of people are saying they're, they're doing it and they're liking it it's really awkward talking to your phone and working out like trying <laughs> to teach people trying to coach people and teach them what to do while working out without seeing how their body is moving, you know, is, is actually a challenge. So like I have to over explain things because I'm very, very, very detail oriented and very big on form in the gym. So it's like, you know, I'm like, all right, so you got to do this. And I'm thinking like, what does their body probably look like if they're the most novice person doing this workout? So it's actually, it's made me grow as a, as a strength coach, as a trainer, and it's been kind of fun and getting a lot of good feedback and people are having fun doing it. So anyone who wants to get a free workout on Instagram, I'm doing it every day. Uh, I, I post the time the night before the day of, and just kind of say when we're doing it, 6 PM seems like a lot of people are doing it then. So tonight I'll be doing it. Or, uh, it doesn't matter because this podcast is coming out in a week, but <laughs> look, at it like, look at it like, but I'll probably keep it at 6 PM since people are still working and, and doing that kind of stuff. Is that 6 PM? Central or Eastern? Oh, sorry. Yeah, 6 p.m. Central. I had a bunch of people ask me that on the first day, and I was like, whoops, because a bunch of guys in Europe were going to do it that I used to play with. So, um, yeah, it's been pretty cool. Yeah, that's awesome, man. We're trying to do the same thing, too. Obviously, people are at home a lot more and probably in front of their computers and stuff, being able to um, browse what's going on and not being able to get out and do as many things as they were. So we're actually doing that, too. We're going to try and put up a lot more content onto YouTube. So if you uh, if you're around and you're listening to this and um, are looking for some hockey, you know, hockey 
knowledge, education, whatever it may be, maybe you're just uh, missing the game. Uh, we're going to have a lot more info on our on our YouTube page. So head on over to the Hockey Think Tank on YouTube, and we're going to have a lot more. We were going to kind of roll things out a lot slower and just build it slowly. But now this is, you know, with everybody being being at home and having the chance to be in front of their computers, not being able to get out, we're like, hey, why don't we just dump it all out right now? <laughs> and so people can can get their hockey fix, you know? Exactly. And I was, I was actually going to roll out my, my training app, uh, or my training program via the train heroic app, uh, this episode and tell everybody about it and release it today, the day this episode comes out on Monday, but with the coronavirus and people thinking their seasons might still happen, which I think is like a very, very slim chance. Yeah. Uh, I can't send out like a, a, a first week, very slow off season program via this app because some guys are like, well, I got to stay in shape in case the season comes back in. So if, if there is that slim chance, the way you're going to train the first week of the off season versus the way you're going to train to stay in shape, to play in a game is completely different. So that's been kind of a, a challenge with that. So I'm going to hold back off on releasing the app. But if this quarantine goes longer, um, I'm, I'm sending people workouts via the app. So if anybody wants home workouts that are detailed to whatever you have at your house, that's always an option. And you can DM me and I'm just trying to help people any way I can super cheap for those ones that are, that are, um, you know, made specifically for people. Nice. I feel like we just did like a bunch of ad reads and we didn't even mean to. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, like people got to have the, I mean, a bunch of people are saying like when these, when the, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And like, so you can be home and you can sit in the closet and you can mope and you can be sad and, and scared or whatever, or you could just do things right now that, that are going to set you up for success whenever this quarantine period is lifted and life resumes back to normal. So do things that are going to get you out of your comfort zone, get better. Like don't, don't just sit around and do nothing. Yeah. This is definitely a time when I think the overachievers and the high achievers are really going to use this as a moment to really dig in and it's where you can really separate yourselves from from other people because now you're pushed into uncharted territory where now maybe you had some things scheduled that you would do like workouts or skates or whatever it may be and that's how you get better but now the people who have the self-motivation and the drive within them to be able to do things on their own those people are going to be so much further ahead uh, you know, as, as this quarantine, whenever the quarantine stops, it'll be, it'll be incredible. Yeah, it's so true. And, and, you know, we're those type of people and we always have been, and I, hopefully we always will be, I'm sure we both always will be, but like, this isn't healthy. I shouldn't have done this last night, but I mean, I worked from 12 AM till 8 AM this morning or like probably seven thirty AM when you texted me a picture of your daughter watching my Instagram live workout <laughs> from yesterday. Um, because I just got, I got in the zone and like ideas were flowing and I was like, I can't stop. Like I'm, I'm in this productive zone right now. And I just, I just let it ride until I, my eyes were about to close and I passed out and then woke up to do this podcast a few hours later. So, um, <laughs> there's no, there's no excuses. Like do something to get better every day. You're at home, stick handle. You're at home, watch YouTube videos, watch hockey think tank, YouTube videos, watch Jeff Avecchio highlight videos and watch how to sell you the right way. Like do something <laughs> to get better. <laughs> I'm saying, you're such a tool <laughs> such a tool <laughs> it's so true though like you can sell it you're pretty good at it hey that's and you know what that's straight from the heart too like 
straight from the others. People who sally and do like really one, like they've been thinking about it and like they do like a choreographed thing. Like I'm not a big fan of that, but I love sallies at the same time. So, but like, I just like, I love watching Ovechkin score because every time that guy scores a goal, it's like his first goal in the national hockey league or his first goal ever. Like you just see how real his passion is when he scores. And I love watching guys that, that you can feel that. Oh my God. Absolutely. That was, uh, I didn't score very often. I was more of a pass first kind of person, but when I did, it was like Christmas. I mean, I just, I literally lost my mind. It's the best feeling in the world. Like the entire world, seeing the puck go in the net and you're better than another human being. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I beat you like, you know, within the confines of the game, it just is unbelievable. (laughs) You're unbelievable. (laughs) Um, Well, let's transition that to, we had an awesome conversation with Jimmy Marcoux here. Just unreal conversation. I know, I don't know if you've met him before. Um, I've been in the rinks with him a lot and we have a lot of mutual friends and stuff. He's an awesome guy. What'd you think of the conversation with him? Awesome. And it was, it was so funny because coming on the podcast, I didn't know how tall he was and, and what's weird about that or what's what's interesting about that is him talking about the guys he looked up to and it was all the guys you looked up to yeah so was, when i was sitting there you know i didn't know that he was a you know a, a shorter guy i'll say in hockey especially you know 10 years ago just very interesting to see similar players look up to similar players for the traits that they wanted to and had to possess to be successful so i thought that was really cool yeah it was interesting as he was talking about it because like our career trajectories were i don't want to say similar but he grew up with a Russian coach and he had a Russian coach that he talked about being the biggest influence on him in his youth hockey days. And I was the same way. And same thing, the people we looked up to were the same people, Marty St. Louis and and Steve Eiserman. And just uh, very cool to hear his story um, again. And and just uh, another person that overachieved another guy that was a smaller guy that signed an NHL contract and getting to know the stories and hearing the journey of people that went further than let's quote unquote, say they were supposed to. Um, it's just, they're so refreshing to hear and, and I can't get enough of them. And it just like, it's a part of my week when we're able to do this, where I just like, I get inspired because in life, especially now with all this quarantine crap that's going on, like it's it's very easy to have a negative outlook on things and having an hour to an hour and a half to be able to to talk about good times and talk about how you got through struggles it's just it's very uplifting and it's for me it's almost like a mental health workout um where it kind of brings you back to the things that you want to be as a person yeah no man totally and it also goes to like you never know who's watching and who's looking up to you. Obviously everybody's going to look up to NHL guys because they're very visible on TV and stuff like that. But around the rinks, I mean, you've talked quite a bit about looking up to guys in Chicago growing up when you'd get to the rink, you were excited to watch Kimber who you said, but it was a guy who played in the NHL. I think was a smaller uh, guy, Tim Stapleton, Tim Stapleton. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and so like, you never know who's watching and who's like learning from you and excited to watch you play and looking up to you. So like, when you're, when you're doing those things, not because you want to impress other people, but like doing the right things will also have a positive effect on other people in your community or, or people that are paying to come watch you. Um, you know, it's really, really cool. Very cool stuff. Yeah. That's even something that 
we talked about and we're going to implement with the youth organization next year is that you know, we want older players on the ice and the younger kids practices every practice to help just, you know, demonstrate drills, but even just be around and, you know, so those kids can see what they can aspire to be years down the road, whether it's two years, three years, five years, whatever. But I just think that's so healthy for any youth organization. I encourage any youth organization to do that, where you maybe have like a sign-up sheet where, you know, as a, as an older player, you have to go on the ice. Maybe you don't have to, but hey, we want at least one or two kids from an older team on the ice with a younger team every time. It just builds a mentorship because it's it's awesome for the kids, number one, to be able to see that and aspire like you were talking about, but it's also good for the older kids to take a little bit of a mentorship, leadership role and and build that into their character and their moral fabric and and how important those values are to learn and to be. So I'm really looking forward to implementing that next year and we'll have sign-up sheets and we're going to make sure that we try and get one older kid on the ice with the younger teams at all times. Um, and it's, it's just getting to the, to the rink an hour before practice, maybe once a month, you know, or twice a month or something like that. So, um, the mentorship thing, and I read a lot of leadership books. I, I love to learn about team building and leadership and all that. And the one constant I think that is so important is mentorship. And we can go back in our careers and Jim talked, Jimmy talked about it in his, like the importance of mentors is everything. And choosing the right mentors, even for parents, like choosing the right kids, maybe not even choosing, but putting your kids in an environment where there's going to be positive mentors around them that can show them the way um, when it comes to, to leadership and team. It's everything. Yeah, and I know we both talked about this quite a bit, and I've talked about this guy quite a bit on the podcast, but like he's the only guy I ever remember coming back that was older that would come and skate with my team. And he did it because he played for the head coach that I had growing up, Scott Sanderson, but Jay Verde, he coaches in the AHL. Now he was, he was in the, or was the all-star coach in the AHL this year. Yeah. He was coaching in the USHL. He coached in the WHL coached everywhere. And he's on his way to the show. He's on a fast track to the show. And he started that when he was in college and coming back to St. Louis and skating with our team and just giving us tips. And he probably only did it like eight times, maybe 10 times. And I'm talking about him 20 years later doing that and how profound of an impact that had on me. Like I'm not making this up. I thought he was the coolest guy ever. I had never seen a college hockey player in person, like never skated with them before. wasn't big in St. Louis at the time. And he made such a profound impact on me that at 17, when I went to juniors, I was like, I'm going to be like Jay and I'm going to come back and teach these 15, 16, 14 year old kids what I'm learning. And I'm still doing it today. And I I follow a lot of uh, influential people on, uh, and leadership people like that on Instagram and, and Twitter and try and learn from them as much as I can. Cause it's so easily digestible. And I read something the other day that you'll like, you'll never learn more than when you're, you're actually doing something and teaching something to someone else. Yeah. And, and I've definitely learned that with this podcast is the more I talk hockey, the more I learn, the more little things I pick up and, and the more I get mad at my younger self for not <laughs> watching more hockey like we always talk about and, and and being invested on this side not just the work and practice and work out and do all that stuff i should have invested in this kind of mental side of it a little bit more um but like it's going to help your kids that you that you make go and help coach those younger kids it's going to help them learn to be leaders it's going to help them to learn the little details of the game because when they coach it they're going to have to internalize it more think about it digest it and i guarantee you they'll start doing whatever they're coaching the little kids on they'll start doing it better 
Because once you have to learn how to say, well, you got to focus on this, you got to focus on that, then they're going to be like, oh man, am I even focusing on that? Okay, maybe I should, whether they know it or not. So I think it's massive props to you. It's very cool. I hope I hope the AAA Blues organization and Car Shield start doing that here as well. Yeah, well, it's funny you say that about Jay Verity and coming back because I distinctly remember one time when I was playing for Stan, it was actually that national championship team that we had and Todd Reardon came back and skated with us for one practice. So Todd Reardon now is, for those that don't know, he's the head coach of the Washington Capitals. And at the time, he was playing for Edmonton. And he came back and uh, and skated with us for a practice. It might have been like uh, Christmas break or something like that. I can't remember. So Todd grew up playing with my Uncle Steven uh, growing up in Chicago. And so he was just back for whatever and came and skated. And I distinctly remember like us getting called in and he gave us like a little speech about things that were important to him as a, as an NHL hockey player. And I remember he was playing for the Edmonton Oilers at the time and his defensive partner was Boris Miranov and Boris Miranov played a lot of years in the NHL and was older than Todd at the time. And his biggest thing, so he didn't speak very good English being from Russia, but his big thing with Todd is like, we have to communicate. We have to communicate. We like, we will die as a, as a D pair if we don't talk to each other and we don't even speak the same language. So there was like some trends, like it was just kind of two guys talking hockey a little bit, maybe with hand gestures and stuff. Um, but Todd was telling us a story about how it made the game so much easier. And even though we didn't even speak the same legitimate language, how they would communicate on the ice. And when they didn't, that was what would piss Boris Miranov off when they came to the bench. It wasn't necessarily an execution thing or you, you missed me on a pass or any, you know, didn't pick up a guy going to the net. So you got a minus. It was, if you didn't communicate with me, that's when he got upset. And I still remember that. And we talk about it all the time, how important communication is. Um, and this is again, 20 years later. So a conversation that an NHL player had with us as a group 20 years ago are things that I'm talking about on a podcast with you that thousands of people are listening to right now. So it just goes to show you how, how much of an impact you can have as a mentor to, you know, maybe not even the one kid that you're a mentor to or the one team that you're a mentor to, but later on down the road, it could be a ton of different people because you're teaching somebody a value that's going to teach another person that value. And then it just could spread like the coronavirus kind of thing. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, it's like, it's, it's so true. Just hearing you say that story about Jay and, and he was a college player at the time, but just mentorship and being able to, especially the kids who are like the best players on the team that people look up to just because of that, or people that play at high levels and things. I mean, it's almost, it's a responsibility to do things the right way. And, and, uh, like, I hate the celebrities that are like, I don't have to be a role model. Why do I have to be a role model? It's like, well, because you are, and there's people that are looking up to you. So what you do, people are going to emulate that. And so, yeah, I just uh, I still remember Todd Reardon. Now he's coaching the Washington Capitals, which is crazy. So just interesting times, you know. Unbelievable. And that reminds me of a Spider-Man quote. I'm a big fan of Stan Lee, R.I.P., um, the guy who created Marvel. And with great power comes great responsibility, you know, uh, with great skill sets and, and someone, you know, being in the forefront of your team or in the NHL or whatever, like a lot of people are going to look up to you, whether you ask for it or not. Um, doesn't mean you got to 
you know, not be you, but like, just know that people are always looking to you because they're going to emulate you. So kind of a responsibility thing. Even youth hockey players too. Like if you're a Bantam player, there's going to be squirts that are going to be walking by your locker room. And so if you're doing stupid things or um, if you're doing good things, the kids are going to be like, oh, that's what Bantam hockey players should do. So that's maybe what we should do as squirts. Um, So like, yeah, just whether it's an NHL player, whether it's somebody that's younger, people are probably looking up to you. And I think, again, like you said, that's a responsibility that I think we should all take on. Yep. Totally. All right, man. We've been talking a lot here. (laughs) So engines today triggered. It's okay. It's all good. It's all good stuff, I think. But, um, you know, as we kind of move forward here again, Jeff and I had actually already talked about it, but if you're not following Jeff on Instagram, he's putting out a ton of awesome videos of, of some workouts that he's doing, um, that you don't even really need anything for. And so I've watched them. A lot of people have watched them and they're really, really good. He's getting more, more and more people that want them. Uh, again, if you are looking for more information from a hockey standpoint, uh, we're putting a lot more content out into YouTube, uh, especially now that this quarantine is happening. Uh, and a lot more people are going to be around their computer and stuff so look for for that um uh, another update is we're going to have some merchandise that is going to be ready if you go to the hockey think tank.com and and uh, we got some shirts if people want to buy those so we've had a lot of people asking for them so we finally have them it's almost like uh almost like spitting chiclets with their pink whitney drink and everybody was like where's the damn drink <laughs> and it's finally out well we finally have our shirts so if you want to go to the hockey think tank.com and uh, we'll have them on our website um again we do have to thank gel sticks our title sponsor um for all that they do for supporting our podcast uh they have again it's a great time to head into your garage or head into your basement and shoot as many pucks as you can to gain an edge on the other players that you're going to compete, be competing with in, in tryouts here coming up. So, uh, a great way to do that is to grab a gel stick stick. And if you want one, go to gelsticks.com, G E L S T X.com and use the discount code think tank one word and, uh, and get a discount on your sticks. And then as always, again, uh, we want to thank everybody that's tuned in and supporting our podcast and listening to us. Uh, this has been again we're a couple episodes away from doing this number number one zero zero so we are very very grateful to to everybody that has tuned in and supported our podcast especially the people who are helping us to spread the word uh, by sharing uh, sharing our podcast in your parent groups your Facebook groups Uh, some people have even taken screenshots of their phone as they're listening to the podcast and put that out on their social media Um, so we really appreciate everybody that has helped support this thing and and we're going to continue to do it as long as you guys keep listening and the numbers keep growing and growing and growing by the day so we appreciate it and you guys are going to absolutely love this episode here with a great guy and james marcu assistant coach from harvard so i can't believe i just said that but it is what it is (laughs) Um, but without further ado here we go with james marcu We are so excited to have on this episode of the podcast, all the way from Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Harvard University, James Marcoux. What's up, James? How you doing, buddy? Good. How's it going, guys? I'm good. I'm good. I'm absolutely going to get crucified for having a Harvard person on my podcast, but we like you enough where uh, we thought it'd be fun to have you on, you know? 
That's fine, as long as there's no fish coming my way. <laughs> oh, I like it. I like it, man. Well, hey, we, we, uh, we'd love to take things way back. And uh, from what I've been told, obviously we have a few very good mutual friends. And uh, I've been told that you have quite the family growing up on Long Island. Dad, a huge beauty. And uh, your brother actually coaching in, uh, in junior hockey right now. And you played with him growing up a little bit as well. So uh, if you can, tell us a little bit about uh, your family and growing up on on Long Island and, and how you got uh, involved in the sport. Yeah, so um, definitely a big Long Island family. I got a uh, brother and a sister, younger brother, older sister. Sister probably is a better athlete than me and my brother combined. She played uh, Division One lacrosse at Monmouth University, so she kind of set the, set the uh, tone for us in terms of working hard and watching her develop her career through high school and and through college so she was uh she was a good role model for us to look to look up to and she uh she really was you know lights out in soccer lacrosse she played every every sport growing up so that was pretty cool to have an older sister who really um showed showed us the way and how to work hard and and uh parents are you know my mom owns a hair salon in long island and she cut um some of the new york islanders hair so that's how kind of we got into the hockey um, the hockey end of the, uh, you know, started playing when we were younger, we go to all the Islander games and Pat flatly, uh, he was like my favorite player growing up. So, um, that's how kind of we got started in skating and five years old, my dad would bring us to rinks and we'd watch all these Islander games, me and my brother. So it was pretty cool to get started like that. That's, that's, uh, that's awesome, man. Were you guys like competitive with each other between, uh, your sister and your brother and stuff at the house? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we, uh, my sister would, you know, more or less beating, beating my brother and I up, you know, <laughs> she would probably couldn't stand us. She'd, she'd push us to the curb and, you know, get out of my way. But no, me and my brother, like, you know, we were, we were, uh, playing together. We were both forwards. And, uh, I think, I think my dad made the switch to move him to defenseman to, to lessen the, the competitive nature between us. But I think he was a, a natural defenseman anyway. But, um, you know, growing up, we, we didn't play on the same team until um, maybe squirts, I think, squirts. And then, uh, you know, we uh, played for the Long Island Royals and, you know, the crazy Long Island uh, youth hockey experience got started for us. You know, my dad was, um, you know, really, uh, really passionate about our hockey career. So he, he was a big, uh, you know, drove us everywhere, took us to all the games and, you know, sacrificed a lot of his time to like any hockey dad or parents, they, they sacrifice a lot of their lives to, to make our um, youth hockey experience what it can be. So I um, was very lucky to have, you know, my dad and my brother, my mom and my sister to, you know, support us. And it's a, it's a lot, you know, driving everywhere and, and traveling, missing high school reunions and proms and, and everything. So um, growing up, it was, you know, crazy Long Island, right? Everything you hear about, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can tell you that Vex, we've we've asked a lot of. We're almost at a hundred episodes now. We've asked everybody pretty much how they got involved in it. Uh, this is definitely the first answer where it came from a hair salon. So, <laughs> and, and, and my. And my sister used to beat me up a lot. <laughs> Not two things we've heard. I right. love that. Unique. I love that. Well, everybody that I spoke to, obviously, you know, like I said, we had 
mutual friends. They said your family is awesome. Um, but I do know that there's another person that had a huge influence on you growing up, and that's uh, Alexei Nikiforov. And anybody that grew up on Long Island uh, that has gone on to play around our age at the higher levels has has worked with him at some point. And we've even had a few people on the podcast before that have worked with him. And uh, I've been very open on the podcast. We just had my crazy Russian coach uh, on just a couple episodes ago. Um, and, and Alexei and him, I actually, they know each other. Uh, I know that cause I coached against Alexei a couple of years ago. And so I asked him about it and they know each other from being out that way. Um, but what was your experience like, um, being under his tutelage and it must've been so much different than anything else that you'd done in, in previously. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's like looking back on everything, having Alexei, you know, is probably the most instrumental, instrumental person in my career in terms of hockey is just, Alexei Nikiforov, like, didn't really know what I was, what I had, you know, until you look back on it now. But, you know, he went to the Tarasov school in uh, Moscow, and that's where he his pedigree came from coaching. So he put us through a lot of, uh, you know, unorthodox training growing up that you look back on now, and it makes a lot of sense in terms of development. So he came in, and uh, he started coaching me as a squirt. So, and then from squirts all the way up until the USHL and, and, and what he was my coach for about eight years. So wow. I think that's the, uh, the most, you know, ideal thing, you know, when you have a coach over a long period of time, you're able to coach that player better. You know, he knew everything about me after, after a couple of years. So I thought that was, uh, looking back on it, he, he was able to, you know, grow me as a player just because he knew me so, so well over eight years. And I think, you know, we did a lot of crazy stuff, whether, whether it's like, you know, going to, uh, you know, the, the swimming pool in the summers and going to the tracks. And I think he was very hands-on with his approach in, uh, in development. So he, he was, uh, he loved to be involved. He loved, you know, showing us the way on the ice. But um, the biggest thing I take away from Alexei is the passion he coached me with. You know, that's, that's the passion I play with. So I thought that was uh, the biggest thing that I've learned from him in, in terms of, um, you know, competing and, and the passion for the, for the game that I have. Dude, that's so true, man. Like that passion rubs off so much on the kids, or I, th- I would say the lack of passion probably rubs off on the kids as well. I think it probably goes both ways. And my Russian coach was very similar. Like he was so into it, but you mentioned that he did some crazy stuff, but what were some of the things that like he taught you or some of the things that you did um, from a hockey standpoint that you take with you, even as a coach here today, because I sit here with my Russian coach and I, I feel like a lot of my processing of the game came from the things that he taught me. Um, so what were some of the things that Alexei taught you that you bring with you in your coaching career? Yeah. I mean, we did a lot of one-on-one stuff um, in practice. You know, I think we did a lot of, uh, you know, we did a lot of small games, but you know, sometimes the amount of one-on-one stuff that we did, would be the whole entire practice. And he was a big believer and you, you can only learn so much from, you know, X's and O's and him talking, but he could learn so much from just learning the, the body language of other players because you're playing one-on-one against them all the time. So you pick up these cues and, you know, you know, all the, all the stuff, the scientists that you guys talk about, about cues and, and, and everything you learn from interaction with his beliefs, you know, from other players. So we would play one-on-one-on-one with, you know, one puck probably for – that's the, 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 the drill we did the most over eight years. You know, we would do that for 20 minutes, just four of us with one puck keep away, you know. 
I've never really uh, thought about that. And then looking back on it, you know, I, I try to talk about the one-on-one play a lot from a coaching perspective. Well, that's one of my favorite warm-up drills too. Like in practices, anytime that I would be like the head coach of the practice or I was running the practice. Cause I had an unbelievable head coach that did all our practice plans. And we had a great system where I just kind of like got to tell the boys what I saw and he did all the hard stuff. Mike Barra, unreal guy. But, uh, I always really liked starting practice with some kind of game like that, where you can get into it kind of slowly. Like the first time when, when I would do it last year, have the boys do it. I would say like, all right, this first one, like I want you facing the guy, not puck protecting, but like facing the guys, you can't move your feet. And I really want you to work on trying to like get through his triangle or pull it, make him open up his skates, try and push it through. Cause that's stuff that I never worked on when I was younger. And Tof and I have talked about this on the podcast. I was one of those guys who like I was faster than everyone else. So when I was younger, I just skated wide and that's all I did. So I didn't like learn how and when to like try and open that guys up. And I think a, a, a super easy way to, to learn that skill and practice it and have fun and get the guys or girls engaged in the beginning of practice is a simple, like one-on-one keep away. And you can change the parameters of the drill. One time you can't move your feet off the ice. One time you got to be facing each other the whole time. One time it's puck protection. Like you can do a whole bunch of stuff, but I think that drill is invaluable. Yeah, no, I think, you know, looking back to, we had so many professionals, you know, NHL guys skating with us, college guys coming to skate with Alexei because he, you know, he got popular as time went on and a lot of, a lot of these players were coming to skate with us. And I would be, you know, the, uh, Alexei's like, you know, Guinea pig a little bit. Cause I was the only one that could understand what he was saying because of his <laughs> Russian accent. So <laughs> all the, all these guys would be like, what is he saying? And, you know, but you know, we worked on edge work. We worked on all this, you know, skating technique and, and, but everything was with each other against, against somebody with pressure. Um, you know, all the things that, I think everyone is starting to talk more about now. Um, Alexa, he, he introduced us, you know, at a young age to that stuff. So like this, like the open pivots, the 10 and twos, we worked on that. I don't think like there wasn't a day where we didn't work on that stuff where hip mobility and ankle flexion, he was always talking about that stuff to us, you know, granted, I didn't really know what he was talking about back then, but I think he was, you know, putting it into our heads, you know, unintentionally for us to recognize those those things and you know the skating and the edge work that the europeans are a little bit ahead of of everyone else i think you know is in is their foundation so that was cool for him to to pass that on to us at such a young age that's really cool and obviously you liked doing it so he must have either you either must have looked up to him so much or he got you to buy in the right way or he made it fun. Like how was he able to, at a younger age, like get you engaged and focused on under understanding how important those things are? Because I mean, today, like that's what everyone's focusing on. Like if you can get a little bit stronger on your edges or decelerate and be able to accelerate just a little bit faster, like it gives you that extra little edge and, and it's going to make you better. So how was he able to get you to buy in? Yeah, no, that's, that's the big thing, like passion. And, and if you can get a player to, to buy in because they love to do it, then it's not really work. But, um, the environment that we had, you know, growing up, I had, uh, probably eight or nine friends that we were on the same team and we grew up we came up playing together for about six or seven years. And we were always going against each other. We were always training together. So those guys became like, you know, my best friends growing up. And 
you know, we hung out away from the rink and then we went and worked out and then we were together, you know, we didn't go to the same schools, but, um, we didn't really have any school friends. You know, I don't, I didn't have any too many friends from my middle school or high school where we're hanging out on the weekends. We'd, we'd be hanging out with our, our guys on the hockey team. So it was cool that, um, we kind of bought into the, the same environment, same environment. Um, and we just embraced it and we thought like going against each other, like we, we would compete against each other really hard, but I think the environment that we were just in was a, you know, we were kind of a product of that. So, um, I know, I know it's tough for, for kids. Sometimes you can't be with the same coach for eight years or you, you can't be with the same coach for multiple years because of some, uh, you know, some things you can't control, but I really think it's important to try and, you know, be with somebody that you can, you can have a, you know, a relationship with in the game where you're not switching teams every year and you're not switching prep schools and you're not jumping around just because it's hard for a coach to coach you for one year. Like, you know, I think it's just, it's really hard for coaches to coach players for one year. And then, you know, then you're like, well, that was, that's not, you know, that's not development. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to unpack a little bit of what you were just talking about in, in that growing of the passion of the game, because it goes into almost like two different kinds of thoughts and philosophies on team building and, you know, growing that passion through that. And the one that you talked about, um, you know, in, in being able to do it with the same kids and creating that environment. I think that's so important in creating a passion for the game because like Jeff and I have talked about it all the time on the podcast, how like shinny in the hotel rooms and like doing stuff away from the ice and like really like even like team meals uh, uh, at tournaments and just any way that you can like make it more fun and get the kids more engaged from a team building standpoint, I think grows that passion for the game. But the other one that I, I think is really interesting in what you're talking about is that that like Alexei was doing things that you guys had never done before. So he, and, and I would imagine he was getting you very much outside your comfort zone and very much challenging you guys to do certain things that you'd never really even seen. So I think that in part grows a passion and, and a real competitiveness for the game too, because if you really get into that kind of thing, it's almost like that mentality of like, I'm doing more than other people are doing. Like I'm working harder than other people are working. I'm being pushed to a different level. And I think that grows a passion for the game as well. So from both of those different standpoints and what you were talking about, how would you relay your experience and maybe give some advice for some youth coaches in how you were brought up in that environment? Yeah. I mean, I guess first and foremost, like Alexei, he coached with that passion, like I said before, and you know, you can't really fool the kids, you know, even if you, they know the players you coach, they know, um, if you're in it for the right reasons, or if you, if you have, uh, you know, if you're coaching because your son's on the team, they can sniff everything out. And that's one thing I noticed as a coach, like, you're not, I'm not going to fool any of my players because, you know, they, they, they can tell how much, you know, you know, passion you have for them individually and how much passion you have for your team. So not going through the motions and really buying into, you know, coaching every kid, um, differently, I guess. And Alexei was really, you know, really good at, you know, telling you what you needed to work on in your game that was different than, than the next, your, your buddy and the, and the kid next to you in the locker room. So yeah, the environment that, that he created was, you know, I think it's so, so, uh, like it's, it's a little bit of unorthodox way, but it was just the, his passion, you know, really seeped into the, the players that he coached. 
I love that. I love that. Well, that led you to go and play for a one PK O'Hanley out in Waterloo, Iowa, in the <laughs> USHL. Another uh, obviously really, really good coach. He's been there, geez, forever now. Um, but Jeff and I have talked on the podcast. We actually just had Brandon Wong on last week, who um, yeah. really just magnified his junior career in the years that he was there. And we talk all the time about how it's so much different being a rookie and then being a veteran in junior hockey, and how year one is typically for probably. 85 to 90 percent of the people a really tough year and then years after that two three or however many years you get some more experience and it becomes a little bit easier for you so that's like when i'm looking at your point totals you go from about 30 points to about 70 freaking points from year one to year two so what was your experience like there in waterloo and and how did that kind of shape you to help you become the the player you ended up being uh afterwards yeah, no, I mean, Waterloo and the USHL, like any kid moving out there, kind of you get out there, it's a little bit of a culture shock being from, you know, I was from East Coast and Long Island, New York, and New York City, there's tons of things to do, and my dad drops me out in, in Waterloo, Iowa, and I'm living with a, uh, you know, a billet family, and my dad says, all right, see you later, and it's like, okay, now what? So um, you really got to you got to take it all in when you get there. And I think that's the delay that everyone talks about as in terms of being a rookie, like, you know, you got to adjust to doing things on your own and, and kind of growing up a little bit. So, um, Waterloo is great. Like the fans are awesome and the environment there is incredible too. So, uh, PK, you know, he, he's a coach that really coaches with a lot of passion too. Um, you know, he, he, he get on you a lot, but I think in terms of, you know, year one to year two like I think I, it was just getting used to the league getting used to living on your own getting used to a lot of things uh that that is uh could be a struggle for some people and you know I think we had good people around us and you know I think coach Fukushima was a big part of uh my development from in the second year and uh PK and and him have been there running you know a great organization for a lot of years so you as a college coach now and looking back and knowing all oh, those first years of juniors are always a struggle they're always hard for guys i'd love for you to talk to the guys listening that are playing juniors and want to go to college or are you know midgets or bantams peewees whatever and they have aspirations of playing division one college hockey from a college coach's perspective i just would love for you to talk about how you guys know that first year is an adjustment because so many kids like i probably had five kids in the last week with the junior seasons being canceled or postponed they're coming home and they're like i gotta start working out right away and like i gotta have a better year and i'm so you know i wasn't that happy and it was their first year and i I try to tell them going into it like that was the biggest jump in my career not not juniors to college or college to the ahl or ahl to even nhl preseason or anywhere in europe it was midgets to junior was the biggest jump for me as a person as a player everything um so i would just love for you to kind of talk about how you see that from a coach's perspective yeah totally agree that that jump from midgets to junior hockey is like extremely hard and way harder than my jump from the ushl to college and even college to the to the american league i was that jump is incredibly hard so and from a coach you know i think it's uh you know we just want to see improvement you know, from, uh, in terms of small picture, big picture, full season, you know, 10 games, 20 games. Um, we know that there's a lot of stuff, you know, that you got to adjust to and moving away and, and new coach and getting your feet wet and, 
but as long as I think there's improvement there, I think that's something that, uh, you know, it gets us excited. Okay. He, he's playing, you know, much better over, you know, the last 20 games or he's really come on at the end of the year. So he's adjusting pretty well. So I think the improvement of, of everything overall, and you know, it's tough as a player. Like when I went from a player to a coach, I'm like, you know, some of the things I look back on I'm, as a, as a uh, player and now as a coach, I'm just, you know, I'm like, wow, I really, I really thought like that as a player, which is completely different now as a coach. Um, so, you, you know, you kind of think, you kind of look at some things differently, but it, we want to see improvement, you know? Yeah, for sure. Well, I can, I can attest to that too. And I think another thing, you know, it may not come easy. I think a lot of kids going to play junior hockey are used to being a top line kind of role guy and getting a lot of ice time and all that kind of stuff. And then when you get to juniors, you have to earn your way up to it uh, a lot of different times. But the one thing, you know, the points aren't, aren't coming and all that kind of stuff. But the one thing that should be a a constant is your compete level. So whatever you're doing when you get to that next level, if you're competing and that shows in your game, that means the people watching you from the stands are going to get a little bit excited. And they know that you have that aspect in your game. And then when we talk to your coaches and they say, hey, it's coming type thing. And hey, like we see it in practice and, and he's going to get there. Like that that goes a long way. So even though, even though you may be struggling, your competitiveness and your attitude goes a long way to you getting recognized when you know in year two or year three then maybe the the points start coming a little bit more and the roles you're getting put in bigger roles so I just think that can never be understated the attitude and the effort and the and the um you know the the competitiveness how important that stuff is especially for us small guys eh James (laughs) (laughs) yeah no competing is you know that's a big buzzword too but you know that's that was my uh, one of my strengths is being five foot six, you know, you had to compete really hard and you had to really bring it every day. But, you know, what is competing? You know, everyone talks about it. And I think it's just like motivation. Like, can you have that self-motivation to to get a chip on your shoulder because you didn't make the team or this guy, this guy said that you can't play college hockey. Do, do you have that inner drive to to kind of, you know, motivate yourself and, and be pissed in practice, but you know that it's your buddy off the ice, you know, maybe can you, can you compete against him harder? So I think those are the things that I, looking back now, um, in terms of competing, I think the the self-motivation and the, the chip on my shoulder that I was able to develop throughout my career, um, really helped me in, in competing. That's unreal, man. Is there any like one kind of story or any one thing that sticks out to you as maybe you got, you felt like you got gypped a little bit being a smaller guy or somebody that said something to you, maybe you're, you're not going to make a certain level. Cause I know I have a few of those in my hockey career, just that, that just stick out like a sore thumb that made me want to prove everybody wrong as a smaller guy. Do you have one or two of those stories? Yeah. I, I mean, I went out to uh, the 40 man camp at the NTDP and you know, I was probably the, the, the best player there in terms of uh, competing and, and, you know, scoring. And I just played unbelievable that weekend. And, um, you know, I was only 120 pounds. So, um, you know, I didn't get, I didn't what? get, I didn't get the, uh, I didn't get the call to make the team then, but, you know, I played in some of the international tournaments, but, you know, here in some of those, you know, Hey, you're just a little too small for us right now. That really drove me in the rest of my career. And looking back on it, I, I thought it was the right move. Um, 
you know, in terms of playing in the North American Hockey League at 125 pounds or 120 pounds <laughs> wouldn't have been great for my development. So uh, looking back on it, it was probably the right move. But at that moment, like, it really gave me a chip on my shoulder going forward. Um, so that's one that really sticks out to me. That's so funny. Like, I, I have a similar story, and I've said it on a previous podcast. I'll give the shortened version here. But basically, we went to the festivals. I think it was a Select 16 festival. And uh, we our, our central team was, like, absolutely stacked. And uh, I think we came in second that year. But we had, like, six or seven different guys that made the team to go overseas. And I had a little envelope in my stall coming in after the last game, so I thought I made it. And uh, basically, the envelope was basically like, hey, come and talk to us. And the guy who ended up speaking to me, he said, hey, um, we thought you played really, really well. You're one of the leading scorers here. Um, but we're actually going to look for a little bit more size in this tournament. Uh, so we're going to keep you as an alternate and not take you. And uh, we just wanted to let you know we thought you played well, but because of your size, you're not going to come over there. And I still remember it, and it drove me so hard <laughs> to want to stick it to him and everybody else in my life that that uh, that doubted me because of my size. So I get it, man. That's freaking unreal. USA Hockey. Yeah, what are you guys I, doing? Come yeah. on. Get it. But it was a different. It was a different time. Now you look at like now, yeah. and you look at like you know Cole Caulfield and what he did, and Jack Hughes. Guys were a little bit smaller when when we were going through it, and the NTDP was a little bit newer. They were looking yep. for guys that were like NHL ready prospects almost. So they erred on the side of like bigger development project type kids that were going to get drafted because that's the way that the NHL was in 2000, early 2000s when we were coming up. Um, so I, I get it, but still just a kick in the freaking seat. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, we, I had a conversation with, you know, Ken Martell when I was at Slack festival about the whole thing. And it was really good conversation to hear, like they knew, you know, that, you know, might've, you know, been not the right thing to do in terms of, the tryout in general, but overall, I, th- I thought it was, you know, it was, the, it was the right thing to do for my development, and it made me a better player because of it. But yeah, as a little guy, you know, you have to have the uh, the chip on your shoulder. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> when, when did that? When, when did that change? Who changed it? Who changed the game? Like in the NHL, for it to be not—I don't want to say "quote unquote" okay, but like all of a sudden, smaller guys started being way more the norm. Who, who, where was that? Well, I think it was a lot, of, a lot of the NHL rule changes. So when uh, they changed the rules yeah. and yeah. You know, wanted to promote a lot more of the speed and the skill aspect, I think teams started to, yeah. to kind of change the way they looked at things. Would you say like yeah. Kane was one of the first guys maybe? Cause like, I mean, when he first came out, I remember people being like, but he's so small, but he's so small. And then the first year you're like, Oh my God, he's the best player in the league. You know? So yeah. I was just wondering. Yep, Kane, uh, he was like the last pick for that NTDP team, too, which was, you know, oddly enough. But uh, Should have been, been you. <laughs> him, and, uh, him, him and Johnny Gaudreau, I think, you know, Johnny, Johnny Gaudreau is, you know, he's doing the things he did at every level, just like Kane in the NHL now. So I think they've kind of, you know, cleared the way for the uh, undersized Guys Gianta with their hockey too. minds, yeah, Gianta and St. Louis, they they were always there. They were playing in the before the rule changes, but I think you know, I think you see teams drafting smaller guys now. Um, you know, I, yeah, Patrick Kane is, even though he's not really, you know, he's like five five eleven, five ten, but you know, he plays uh, the way he plays the game is, you know, 
Johnny Gaudreau and him are on a different wavelengths, I feel like. Yeah, they're just unbelievable, the things they're able to do. And I think it's great for the game now that anyone of any size can can do well. I remember when I was in juniors and on central scouting and, like, looking at other guys and the guys who got drafted, and I didn't, and, like, some of them were just, like, really tall, huge human beings, like like lumberjacks. And I was like, but they're not any good, and they're not going to be, and they won't, you know, some of them wound up not being so really cool to kind of see that change also no coincidence that we've also had two of those guys we just talked about on the podcast Gianta and uh, Martin St. Louis so any listeners who who haven't heard those earlier episodes with them I mean we're very fortunate to have people like that on Um, so definitely check those episodes out yeah buddy (laughs) yeah Yeah, Marty St. Louis he was he was the guy I looked up to a lot you know as a little guy growing up him and Gianta were definitely two of the two of those guys well, I was reading some stuff about you, and uh, it, prior to the uh, the podcast, trying to get some ammo, and it's actually interesting because you talked about how two of your biggest influences growing up were Steve Eiserman and and Marty St. Louis, and literally those are my two idols. So it's just interesting that it, those were the exact two people that you named. Um, what what was it about those guys that I mean, St. Louis obviously the size uh, is a bit of a factor, yeah. I'm sure, but what was it about those two guys that you really gravitated to? Yeah, I mean, you know, Yeiserman, he, you watch him play, and it was just like, just always, always, uh, always ahead of the game. You know, always knew what what was going on. Just watching without the puck, I thought that was, uh, you know, for me, I thought that was one of the best ways to model your game after someone like him in terms of play without the puck. But Marty St. Louis, just his competitiveness is kind of how I tried to compete and and run around and and and. Uh, and be a, a, you know, the player that he was in the NHL. That, that's how I modeled my game after um, Marty. But, you know, Steve Geiserman with his skill and, you know, I think his IQ is just, it's kind of off the charts too. And I think both those guys, I think it's good for kids to have uh, um, players to model your game after. You know, we had a lot of NHL players skating with us with Alexei. I mean, I remember Alexei Yashin and, and uh, Alexei Kovalov were, were skating with us in the lockout year, and these guys are just wheeling around. And I'm like, I was like, this is amazing. This is like the best, the best day of my life. And so it was cool to look up to those guys, and I think it's important for, for kids to have players that, that relate to your game, right? If I, I didn't want to model my game after, you know, six-foot-four guy like runs around and hits because that's, that's not what I was going to do, but I thought uh, – I think it's important. <laughs> it's important to have somebody to model your game after. Dude, okay. So I've heard I've heard people talk about how if Alexei Kovalev wanted to be the greatest player of all time, he could have been based upon like how good of a hockey player he was. When you were on the ice with him, how was it just how good was he? Was he that good? Yeah, I mean, he was on like his hands and then like how big and sh- like he he's not you're not supposed to have that good of hands for for being as big as he was and as, as fast as he was, like he would, he was just mesmerizing with the puck and it's just you. You look at him skate around and you're just like, I you didn't, even, I didn't even want to skate. I was just like watching him the entire practice. Like I could have just sat on the bench and just watched him stick handle. <laughs> you know, he had that effect of that presence on the ice where it was just like, like in the movies when the uh, the music's going and you know it was just <laughs> it was pretty cool. 
I've also heard that from a lot of people, especially when I was playing in my early, the early part of my career. And uh, if you guys have, have you guys ever seen? I think it's called Alexei Kovalev the Shift on YouTube. <laughs> oh. Have you seen that? <laughs> Where he tries to come back to the bench. I think he's playing for the Rangers when he's young at the time. He takes a super long shift. They're calling him off, calling him off, and he doesn't come off. So when he finally comes to the bench, the coach goes, no, stay out there. And so he stays out there. And then he tries to come off, and the coach makes him stay out there. And the shift is like – it's like minutes long. It's like <laughs> – I want I, like I haven't watched it in a few years. I want to say the shift is like four minutes, and I feel like he winds up scoring at the end of the shift. But you got to look it up; it's really funny. And another yeah. story, real quickly. When uh, so after I I, I I I sign my deal, I get my concussion that the first summer going into my first full year pro. Let's don't play that whole year, and then I wound up Boston put me in five NHL preseason games after missing a year and a half, which was like just crazy. But I think it was just because I I worked so hard in the summer, got in such good shape, whatever. So I was playing in uh, preseason in um, Ottawa, I believe, and I was on the penalty kill and Alexi Kovalev comes down on me and absolutely toe drags my pants off. And I, I wasn't I wasn't even mad because I was literally in my head like, oh, my God, I just got toe dragged by Alexi Kovalev. Like, I, I mean, I, I still play in the game, but like in my head, I still realized like, holy crap, like I just got T dragged by Alexi Kovalev. That was pretty cool. <laughs> You're like high five in your teammates. Oh, I love uh, that. Uh, did he end up scoring Vex? No, it, like actually the toe drag really didn't do anything. Like he toe dragged me. Like I, I was, com- I was angling him like really hard as the second guy on the PK four check. And, uh, he just like came in and pulled like a, I thought he was going to just like cut down the wall and he toe dragged the crap out of me and wound up pulling up a Gretzky turn. So like he didn't do anything really other than set up in the zone. But like thankfully, especially because I probably paused and I was like, oh, that was sick. <laughs> <laughs> so it made you look it, like did it make you look bad, though? I mean, I'm sure it did. Like, it, again, he didn't like toe drag through me and beat me. He like came in and fake drove toe dragged around my stick pressure pressure. And then he either pulled up while looking at me, which is obviously super hard to do with like, you know, six two two ten twisted steel and sex appeal coming down at you. But, <laughs> but he, he did. I remember he pulled up and set up in the corner of the blue line. But yeah, in my head, I was like, oh, that was sick. That's unreal, dude. Nerd. Hey, hey, well, Jimmy, so I, w- I wanted to ask you this because um, speaking of Kovalev setting people up, you played three years at UMass. Um, you are the career assists leader there, and you broke the single season record for assists, not once, but twice in your career there. So that's kind of similar to the kind of player that I was, or a little bit more of a pass first mentality. What was your mindset on the ice? What position did you play typically? And uh, like, like how did you navigate playing the game where you were setting guys up? Were there certain like little cues that you had or certain things that you would think about when you had the puck or when you weren't with the puck? Yeah. I mean, I think being an undersized guy, I don't think I had a great shot. (laughs) So, (laughs) you um, you know, but you know, I became to be a playmaker just by, you know, the way I saw the game, but I thought it was a little bit of the way Alexei coached us and, uh, coached me specifically towards my game individually is, you know, to see the ice and set, set guys up and kind of be a, you know, a, uh, 
kind of like a captain out there in terms with the puck and, and trying to make your teammates better. I always remembered like a quote was just like a good player, you know, can, can score a lot, but a, you know, a great player can make other people around them uh, a lot better. I don't know. I'm not sure how the quote goes, but that, that quote kind of stuck with me for a long time. And, you know, watching Steve Yzerman and, and watching some of my, uh, you know, role models playing growing up, I tried to, you know, get some, get some uh, chemistry going with some guys. And I was really good at reading um, players on my team, like me and Casey Wellman developed a pretty good, uh, you know, chemistry on the ice. And, you know, I think we, we had, I want to say he had like 20 goals that year. And I think, uh, you know, I was, I think I was going out of my way sometimes to set him up, but, you know, it just kind of came as a, that's what kind of player I was. And that, that's where I knew if I could stick to my game and try and, you know, be a playmaker, you know, I thought that was something that I, I took pride in as a player. Love that. Love that. Same here. I want to unpack something that you just talked about, and that is making— Unpack it, Toph. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that is—because you hear this saying all the time, like, this player can make players around him better. I feel like that is such a, such a compliment for any player that plays in the game. And you touched on it a little bit there, but I think that would be an awesome conversation point to, to kind of unpack, <laughs> if that's what you want to call it. <laughs> so like, to, to you, Jimmy, like what, uh, what does that mean, make other players better? And how, how do you think that like for the kids that are listening or maybe even the coaches that are listening, how could you make somebody have that kind of mentality where they're making the people around them better? Yeah, I mean, it would kind of be in anything you do with uh, in hockey in terms of being a good teammate and, you know, being on the ice and, and uh, working hard. And, and there's a lot of things that could fall under. But, you know, I think there's uh, the, the general idea for, for me, and that would be just, you know, when I, when I was on the ice with the puck, I always, I always wanted to make sure that, you know, I made the right play, you know, even if the right play was to, to take a hit and, and, and get it deep. Like as I developed as a player, I feel like I was making those plays by the time I was in, you know, college or maybe not so much in peewees when I wanted to skate it down through everyone. But I think it's just, you know, that kind of be a good teammate, you know, Do, make sure you're, you're uh, pushing the guys and you're competing hard in practice. I guess for, for younger players, if you if you're not working hard in practice, you're you're hurting your teammates too because you're out there going through the motions, so you're not helping them get any better. You know, that's so true, man. Oh my God, is that so true? It's something we talk about all the time. How like if you're lazy, that's like the selfish, most selfish thing that you can do because you're not making your teammates better. And uh, and I think just kind of going along with that in in somebody that makes. Um, they're the players better around them. I think it's just bringing the best version of yourself in your role to the team because you talk about how like you were a little bit more of a playmaker and can facilitate plays and put the puck on guys sticks and, and how that made other people better. But there was also a Wellman who you talked about on your line and he was, if he was bringing his best self, he was getting open and ready to score like a hundred percent. And, and that was making you better because now you're scoring goals as a line and you're helping your team win. So it's not necessarily like a one size fits all like this guy makes people better from like a, almost like a robotic kind of standpoint. It's more of bringing the best version of who you are and what kind of role you play to the team, along with the intangibles that what you talked about in the competitiveness and the working hard and making each other better in practice. I just think that that authenticity and, and that understanding and buy-in 
into who you are as a player is so important too. Yeah, absolutely. You said that way better than I did, but that, uh, you know, <laughs> definitely, definitely, definitely bringing your best self. And, you know, I, I think a big part of, uh, I was lucky to have a brother that I played with growing up, you know, so we were 18 months apart and we, we would always, uh, you know, compete hard against each other, but we always made each other better. You know, I thought that, uh, that was good for my development as well. Like just having somebody, always always around and and uh you know being the older brother i tried to show him show him the the right way to do things but you know he's he's uh the younger bigger taller brother (laughs) (laughs) uh those tall guys can't yeah kick their butts (laughs) um well hey this i mean this is awesome conversation for sure and and you you played three years at UMass and then, you know, ultimate dream signed an NHL contract, uh, coming out of there. And, uh, you know, Jeff had mentioned, and, and you mentioned a little bit earlier that both of your careers took a, a pretty steep turn after that, uh, and both suffered pretty debilitating concussions. Vex, you were out for a year and a half and, and, and James, like it was one of those things that really hurt your, your career. So, um, I wanted to ask you, you know, the high of signing that contract, what that was like, and then after that, when you did get your concussion, what that experience was like, because I'm sure there's people listening that maybe even going through that right now um, or will go through it in the future or have gone through it in the past. Um, head injuries are just a, a scary, scary thing at, at this time and what we're learning about them. So talk to us a little bit about just how unbelievable it was signing your deal and then just how tough it was for you after that going through that injury. Yeah, I mean – Signing, obviously, NHL contract is what you want. It's your dream to play in the NHL and sign. And I was lucky to do that after my junior season. Um, and then, you know, play a little bit in the American League. I think I did a uh, – after college, played like 10 games with the, the Sharks and then the Worcester Sharks and then another 30 games the next year and then got uh, injured and had a concussion. But, uh, you know, hearing the news that you can't play hockey ever again was like – that we wasn't ready for that to sit in yet, you know? So mentally, I think that's the biggest, um, and Jeff, you, you know this too, like mentally the, the grind of changing your, your life from, okay, you're a hockey player. Now it's over. Now, now it's the mental piece that comes to, comes to light. And it's just trying to battle through that. And, you know, all my relationships change with all your friends and even your parents and, and everything. So I think the, uh, the battle and and the struggle that people go through, you really don't know what it's like until you're kind of in it. But, uh, you know, once you can make it through it, I think it's, it's something that you can make it through anything in life after, you know, looking back on it, I could, I could say that that was definitely the hardest part of my life is just going through that time of, you know, okay, I'm, I can't play anymore because of, uh, an injury that you have no control over. So, um, Jeff probably can touch on it too, you know, yeah, it's definitely not easy and it's it's a really hard injury to deal with because it's not like it's a knee where you somebody tells you, "All right, well, this has happened a billion times to a billion other people, so it's going to take you somewhere in the range of 6 to 8 months to heal or 1 to 2 months or whatever. Or you could have surgery and it could heal or it could not. We'll see." Like it's kind of like, "Well, we don't really know that much and we don't know why you're feeling the way you're feeling or how long it's going to last or if it'll last forever 
So there's a lot of anxiety that comes into it because like we as, as high level athletes, especially you and I professional athletes signing NHL deals, like you're so in tune with your body and so accustomed to be able to push yourself. And then people are like, well, you can't push yourself. So you're like, okay, for how long? And they're like, I don't know. And that's just very, very hard to deal with when you're somebody who's a go-getter and is like always like, all right, if my goal is to be X, I'm going to work every day towards X. I mean, that's what we do. That's how we got to where we did. Um, and, and so it's it's definitely hard. But I think the biggest – to anyone listening to this that's gone through that or is, is going to go through that, might go through that, or is, is going through it now, I was very lucky that when I stopped playing um, – it was, it was my choice, even though I was pretty nervous every day from my bad concussion the next 10 years of my life, that if I got another bad one, like, <laughs> you know, would I be able to live normally? I was, I was actually worried about that, but hockey is what I wanted to do, and so I just kept playing. Probably pretty stupid, but that's me and my decision. Um, when you retire, like, get involved in hockey right away. You don't have to be a full-blown head coach. I wouldn't be, actually, especially in today's world. I don't even know if I'd be a full-blown assistant coach, but at very least be a volunteer somewhere because I stepped out of being a player, and I absolutely loved being in the locker room. Loved, I loved practicing, loved battling my friends and teammates and going out to lunch with them after. Like, Loved scoring goals, playing it up for the fans. And when you stop playing, there's none of that. So I started coaching right away, and luckily, like, it was almost like I was still playing. I was in the locker room with the boys. I coached 18 year olds. So they're not adults yet, but they're really mature and they cared and they were triple a level. So they were dedicated. And I felt like I was part of a team still. And I, I look back on last year and that really helped me mentally, um, to make a very smooth transition. Yeah. There were still hard days or hard times where I missed it, but I, I can't stress that enough. Like get back involved with the team in hockey and, and it definitely eases that transition. Yeah, for sure. I, 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 uh, you know, I got injured and I was, I was like, what am I going to do now? And I was kind of going through the motions a little bit. My wife was like, you have to get into hockey. She's she was like, you need to get back in it. So, um, you know, thankfully she was, she was there and, and I started coaching at Milton Academy and, uh, it was really, yeah, I went right into it. I was an assistant there and it was, it was great. I loved, uh, being around the team again, like you said, being in the locker room, making jokes with the guys. So definitely kind of brought me back to life. Definitely. Yeah. There's, there's, there's no doubt about it, man. It's, it's so massively important. You just feel like, even though you're not playing, you feel like you're part of the team and, and it's huge. <laughs> yeah. I think that's, yeah, that's the biggest thing you miss, right? The, the locker room and, and the relationships you have with, with the boys. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, hey, I want to I wanna discuss a relationship that you had. So you coached at, at Milton Academy, and I think this is a great thing for all kids to, to hear. And I tell this story to a lot of different people. I haven't really told it on the podcast before, but I, it's one of the funniest things that's ever happened for me as a college recruiter. But also it's, a, it's like a cautionary tale as well and how important it is that, uh, that people are honest with you in their assessment about kids when you're, you're recruiting. So you work with a guy who's an absolute beauty in Paul Canada at Milton <laughs> Academy. So what was, what, what was, uh, I have a story, but what was coaching with him like when you were there? Cause you guys won, I think the championship when you were there, right? Yeah, we, we lost in the finals and I was just like going, getting into coaching. I didn't know what it was going to be like. And coach Canada, just like, you know, he's been around mass and, and coach Northeastern and he's your typical, uh, you know, 
Massachusetts guy with the Boston accent. He's got all the one-liners. He, he was really fun to work with. And he, he's like brutally honest, which is, which I think is great. Uh, so that actually leads right into my story, which is hilarious. <laughs> I remember, I remember going to, uh, to watch, uh, Milton play and, uh, I remember calling him after the game because there was a kid that was pretty skilled <laughs> and I go, Paul, you know, who's this kid? What's his story like? All this kind of stuff. You know, I saw he's pretty skilled, you know, but he's, you know, he's not really that competitive. What's his deal? And he goes <laughs> straight up, he goes, Toph. If I tell you to take this kid, two things are going to happen. Number one, Coach Schaefer is going to kill you. And then number two, he's going to get in his car, he's going to drive to Boston, and he's going to kill me for recommending this kid for you guys to take him. He is not competitive at all, and he was, there's no way that he would fit into what you guys are doing. I was like, all right. Awesome. Good stuff. You know, but the thing that I think people need to realize is like for me, and you can empathize with this too, as a recruiter, like I so much enjoy that. And that helped every single other kid that I ever recruited out of Milton because I knew that he was giving me an honest assessment out of a player. So like the next time I'm going to watch Milton play, if Paul says, this is a guy you really need to, to watch him. And this is a guy that, that can play potentially for your team. Like now I had built a trust in with him because he was honest with me where every single kid for Milton after that, I was going to take like everything that he told me and, and use it as opposed to like a lot of other coaches around, they'll, they'll just kind of sell you everybody that they have because they want everybody to, to move on. And they, now their program kind of gets the, the lore and the name for moving kids along. But if you sell me a load of crap, I'm not going to believe you when you talk to me about kids after that. So like just that refreshing honesty that he had in telling me what he actually thought about a player and not trying to sell me everybody that did wonders for, I think every kid in the Milton program that ever has gone through there. So what are your thoughts on that now as a college recruiter? And then, and then then just even thinking about coaching with Paul as well. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, that's right on with him. Like he, uh, you know, we, I still talk with him a lot. He's one of my mentors and just kind of keeping in touch with him. And, and, uh, you know, I think the biggest thing as a college recruiter, now you go ask coaches around junior hockey, Hey, how's this guy? How's, how's your team doing? And they give you 12 guys. And I'm like, well, do you have any bad players? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, like just to see there, like, who, like, you know, like why, why, why are you, uh, you know, giving me a list of 15 guys? Um, you know, I, I agree to it's, it's a respect thing and trust thing. I think just like, uh, you want to trust your players when, when you put them out there, they're going to do the right thing. It's relationships are huge and, in recruiting. And I think it's, you know, I think it's a big part of recruiting is, is the relationships you have with people, um, coaches and, you know, and players and kind of, uh, you know, the process of the recruiting world and, and how everything can be interpreted, um, under a microscope, you know, I think relationships are huge for college coaches and, and recruiting. Yeah, and I feel like just being upfront and honest is like the biggest part of those relationships too because, uh, yeah, I, I mean, what you said is dead on. It was so funny when you make your initial phone calls to people maybe at the beginning of the year or something and say, hey, like, 
who like who are your top guys like who are people that we should be watching and then they list off like 16 different players and for us like even you know working at ivy league schools probably 75 percent of those players couldn't get in so it's like you know um but it's just no it's just it is when you're up front and i'm dealing i'm like i'm dealing with that right now in the youth hockey world because people are trying to like you know choose what team they're going to play for and all this kind of stuff and what what i'm finding is that it's hard like i'm just trying to be upfront and honest in what I do. And this is what the program is going to be. This is what your kid is going to get. Um, this, this is who I am. And then I put it out there and then just, if that's what you like, then that's what you like and come. But I feel like there's not a lot of people that are doing that. I feel like there's so much like salesmanship and almost one upping and so much just like, I almost call it like marketing, but it's like bad sleazy marketing in the youth hockey world. Um, instead of just being upfront with who you are and what you can do for people. I don't know. Is that something that you see too? Yeah. I mean, I just, I guess it just goes along with like the kids can see the players. Like, they can see what, what you're in the, in the game for, whether you're their coach or, or you're being a salesman and you know, the, the kids and the players, they could read that. Like, yeah. I, I, I really do believe that like, you can't you can't fool these kids any like you're not fooling anyone really, you know. Um, so I think it's uh, it's it's tough, you know. I think there's a lot of youth hockey um, teams and organizations that that are, you know, just kind of trying to find the right way to to market their players and a good coach wants to push their players to the highest of levels. But you got to try and find that line, you know. I think that's that's important too. Yeah, definitely. Especially in midget and junior hockey, like there is that exposure aspect of it. But at the same time, like you can put kids in front of the, the, you know, the colleges and the junior teams all you want. If they're not good, then they're not going to take them. So so I think that the, the development aspect of it and the, and we talked about it on previous podcasts, Jeff, like just being able to push kids and make them better. I feel like that gets lost a little bit in youth hockey where the exposure side of it almost gets overemphasized. I don't know if that, does that make any sense? I don't know. It's, I, I feel like that's kind of what yeah. I'm dealing with right now. Yeah. Exposure, yeah. That's yep. a buzzword. Ugh, and it's a buzzword I hate. <laughs> what do you think, Jimmy? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, if you push a player and they're not good, the next time you go to push a player, you know, that'll be in the back of, uh, everyone's mind. Right. Like, so just being honest is, uh, could, could, uh, extend the relationship or extend for players down the road when you, when you do have the good players, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, you've coached with some pretty, pretty good coaches. You know, we talked about Paul, but you've had the chance to coach at UMass and, and coach now at Harvard. And, uh, you know, so guys like Greg Carvel and Teddy Donato, two of, uh, you know, two of the more well-known uh, coaches in the game. What was it like and what did you take? Uh, maybe we'll start with Coach Carvel. What did you take out of being able to coach with him at UMass? Yeah, so I was a uh, volunteer there for two years and coming out as a player and stepping into the college coach, you know, coaching world, you're, you don't really know what to expect. And Carvey, you know, he was one of the best guys to learn from in terms of how to run a program. And he he went to UMass as a new coach and I was going with him on staff with uh, Benny Barr and Jared DeMichael, but you know, Carvey, he really taught me how to be a coach, like coming from a player to a coach. Sometimes you're, you don't see the game. You see it as a player, right? So how do you see the game as a coach and, and what do you look for in terms of systems and evaluating and, and running a program? I think Carvey was, he was, uh, 
huge, huge uh, mentor for me in terms of showing me how to kind of be a coach and, and run a program and try and build a program to where, you know, they went, they went to the uh, national championship game and he's really implemented a culture there with, with Jared and Benny that, you know, I think is, is pretty, um, you know, that's what you want your program to be in terms of building a culture from in think three to four years. Um, you know, it was great to work with players like Kale McCarr and, and Mario Ferraro. So as a volunteer, I think I got the best of a little bit of everything there. That's awesome. And then you went to Brown and, uh, and got to coach with Brendan Whitted there uh, for last, or not last year, but the year before that, before you went to Harvard. And, and Brown had one of their best years that they'd had in a long time. Um, just from getting in there, I know you were only there for a year, but I'm always interested in teams that overachieve based on expectations. So what was it about that team that you coached at Brown that allowed you guys to, to really um, – you know, overachieve and, and, uh, and beat the expectations of what people thought about the program at the time. Yeah. I thought like going in, you know, as my first, first job as an assistant and, and trying to bring what I learned from UMass over there at Brown and Jason Guerrero and I had a good relationship. And I think that, uh, you know, I just brought my passion there and I really coached with, um, a lot of, uh, passion in, in terms of trying coaching for the guys. And I think we, we had to get back to kind of the basics and playing the game the right way. I think we started two and seven there, but um, we were getting better each week in practice. I thought, so I thought we were competing hard. We were practicing the right way and, you know, we weren't getting the results yet, but uh, it was, it was, it was um, good to see that we were kind of turning a corner around Christmas time in terms of the way we were playing and kind of, you know, not really caring about, uh, if we won or lost, but more about our effort and our attitude. So um, I think the guys started to really buy in with a lot of the, uh, a lot of the things we were trying to do in terms of playing the game the right way. And, and I think, I think the second half of the year, we maybe lost four games and it was fun and guys were just going out there. And I think in college, you know, you could win if you work hard and, and, and uh, play the game the right way. Like, you know, you see the parody around college hockey. It's just, it's kind of the recipe, right? Work hard and play the game the right way. And, you know, not always the skilled team is not always going to win. Yeah, it is. Those absolute grinds for sure. The Meehan Auditorium, that was never an easy place to win too. <laughs> that, that old yeah, barn is, uh, many, is a tough uh, one. Too many fans there. <laughs> yeah, <there's... laughs> oh man. Well now, now you're obviously coaching at Harvard and, uh, I just, I have a tough time even saying anything positive about that freaking place, but I'll try. Uh, I'll try. Just, you know, it's one of those things that's been ingrained in me for a long time. Uh, but you get a chance to coach with Teddy Donato, um, you know, storied NHL career, and uh, he's done some really good things at Harvard since he's been there as well. Um, also a fantastic storyteller. So take, uh, what I want to know, like he is hilarious. Take me into, because I recruited against you guys a lot, but take me yeah. into the recruiting room when you guys have a kid and a family and what Teddy freaking Donato is like. He's got to be just, it's just got to be like story after story. Yes, Teddy, he, he, uh, he could, he could uh, tell a story like him and my dad are the two top storytellers that I've ever met. <laughs> he, he, he's got more stories. He knows, he knows the, the most, uh, you know, random names from like the most random information that'll bring up at any time. And it'll be like, how do you know that? Or like, well, you know, 
where did you see that? And he, he kind of relates it to, to, uh, to the recruiting pitch. You know, he went to Harvard, he, he's played in the Olympics in the NHL. So when he, when he gets going and, and he talks, it's really, it's really cool to see. And, um, I think people, you know, if you're, if you're as a player and you're sitting there listening to him, I think, you know, you are, you know, he's got your attention and he can, he can, uh, relate to so many, so many different people and so many different families. And I think that's kind of what has made them successful here is just because of the way he, 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 uh, prides himself on building the program with, uh, relationships and the family, um, mentality. That's cool, man. That's cool, man. And I do have to ask you too, because the Cornell Harvard rivalry is, is something that's pretty special and having gone through it as a player, uh, having gone through it as a coach and now even as an announcer doing the TV games and stuff, uh, even seeing it from the press box is pretty cool. What it, what's it like on the other side when you having like fish thrown at you and, you know, newspapers and just that the crowd is packed and warm ups and stuff. And even when we head out to Harvard, we bring a pretty good contingent, uh, out to play at the bright Landry center as well. So what, how do your players think about that rivalry? Do they think it's pretty cool as well? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, as a coach coming into it, I had no idea what it was like and not experiencing it. And, you know, I'm sitting there talking with the freshmen on our team, and I'm like, you know, what do you guys think? And they're like, oh, this is going to be awesome. This is going to be, you know, unreal. So it was pretty cool to be a part of that. Uh, you know, you guys packed, packed our rink out, and it was a uh, good atmosphere here. And then we go to Cornell, and we get fish thrown at us in newspapers, and they're scraping the fish guts off the ice before the game. I'm like, you know, <laughs> it's a pretty, uh, pretty cool experience. Our guys get jacked up for it though. I love that. I love that, man. I'd like, there's nothing better than that rivalry vex. Like, I don't know who your guys' biggest rival was at Western, but I, I actually, I should say probably at Harvard, there's probably three or four different schools who consider you guys their biggest rivalry. So I don't know who you guys would say. Maybe <laughs> Yale is your biggest rival. Um, but just people at Cornell, it's just, just, two totally different places you know harvard's in boston more of a big city kind of the i don't want to say elitist but i'll say it elitist uh, attitude you know it's harvard the top school in the world type stuff and then cornell we're kind of in the country agricultural type school just very very different vibes and uh, so the rivalry runs deep especially on our side and it's just it's so much fun like the games are just electric derbies to the best what <laughs> they call it in Europe? They call them derbies. Like when you play against your rival, I, I have no idea why they call it a derby, but every time you're playing against, like, it's usually a town that's really close to you or a city. Sorry. That's really close to you. And it's like, all right, boys, we got the derby game coming up next week, derby game. And like both fan bases will travel to the other rink. Oh yeah. And it's just, it's unbelievable. And I, I feel like college hockey and pro in Europe, the fan bases are very similar, like at a good school, like Cornell. Uh, I don't know how Harvard's fans are. I never got to play against them or watch them, but like just super passionate, super rowdy, all about the team. Like, yeah. So we just called them Derby games. <laughs> uh, I like that, man. I like that. Well, well, James, before we let you go, I, I do have to give you a little bit of crap because um, I heard that you're a great teammate, but a terrible roommate from uh from somebody that you may have uh played played hockey with in the past so can you can you address this this rumor about being a great teammate but terrible roommate yeah i guess uh i was uh rooms with roommates with brian kane at umass so we uh we shared some good uh 
good nights together, but I don't know what he's talking about, really. I think he was the, uh, you know, I think Brian was on his computer the whole time working on Prodigy Hockey, and I was playing video games, and now now I'm like, wow, I can't believe he was doing it now. So, <laughs> he, uh, you know, Brian and I, we, we've, uh, we've become real close, and I think he, uh, you know, what he's doing is great with his, his company and everything that, you know, we talk a lot all the time and I I'm reaching out to him and, um, and it's really cool to have, you know, a friend that you could just bounce ideas off of each other. Yeah, man. He's like one of the smartest hockey people I know. And, uh, I have to imagine that his room, maybe it's the complete opposite, but I have to imagine that his side (laughs) of the room was like pristine and everything was in the right order and like just absolutely organized. Is that, is that the, the cane side of the room or what? That would be the cane side of the room in today's world. Maybe in, in college it was a little messy, but uh, yeah, yeah. He, uh, you know, Brian studies. He studies the game more than anyone, really, that I you know know. And um, we had some good good times at UMass with uh, with our rooms, and we definitely uh, definitely could uh, use the cleaning person in our room for sure. <laughs> you and you and us both. Don't worry. Um, that's so funny. So Kaner is actually the number one downloaded podcast that we've had so far. So when we had him on, so for all the people who are listening to this, if you haven't listened to the Brian Kane episode, this is the one where we had the Malcolm Gladwell and David Epstein YouTube uh, interaction, I guess you can call it. And uh, so we talk a lot about youth development in it and uh, get some insight from a YouTube uh, a YouTube interview between David Epstein and Malcolm Gladwell, a lot about like sports specialization and stuff. So if you haven't listened to that, go to it. But I did have another podcast guest who you were teammates with that uh, – that wanted me to ask you a certain question as, uh, as well. And, and he said, ask him how many times a month he gets his long Island fade, uh, touched up. And maybe that, <laughs> maybe that comes from your mom owning a salon. I don't know, but, uh, is your hair game? Is it still pretty strong or what? Uh, I get my hair cut a lot, I guess. <laughs> I guess, uh, I never, my mom never cut my hair because we would always, I would be in the chair. I'd be like, don't do that. Don't do this. <laughs> She was just like, go, go, go to someone else. Go, go, go to where you want to go. <laughs> I'm going to guess, uh, that would have been Eddie Olchek. That, that is a pretty good guess. That is a pretty good yeah. guess for sure. <laughs> I love that. I love that the chirp from out of the rafters comes and just pinpoint who it is. Love it. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. And again, another, another good podcast. We had Eddie Olchek and his dad, big, big Edzo on, uh, that was, I want to say maybe in like the first couple months that we started doing this Vex when we had him, him and his dad on, that was a really cool episode too. So if you haven't that listened was. to that one, then, uh, what was, what was that like? Um, you know, you guys must've had a pretty good thing. I know a lot of the guys that played at UMass with you. It seems like it was a pretty good group of guys, huh? Yeah, we had a lot of fun there for sure. I think, uh, looking back on it, you see all the guys and we were like, uh, um, just the locker room was great. Like that, that was one of the things that was the best about being on that team in three years. Like you, you well, there, I'm in touch with all these players from, from UMass and they're all like, you're good friends. So I guess that's all you can ask for. But Eddie was, uh, Eddie was good. Eddie, uh, he came into UMass. He, he was uh, right out of Sioux City, so we had to show him the ropes a little bit, show him, <laughs> show him how to, uh, you know, 
just dialed in a little bit, but he was, he was great. He, uh, he shouldn't be talking about his hair. His hair never changes. I think he, <laughs> he's, you know, he's got the same, same length of hair for <laughs> since I've known him. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Barb's thrown. I'm sure there'll be a few texts going back and forth after this podcast comes out now, all these, all these stories, but Hey man, we've had you on here for quite a, quite a long time. And this has been awesome. Like uh, I, I've loved seeing you rise through the ranks and, and, uh, and getting, you know, job after job after job and moving up and, and you're doing such a great thing in, in college hockey right now. Unfortunately, you are at that place that uh that i don't enjoy very much but it is what it is be okay i think i remember i think i texted him as soon as i saw that he got the job vex i was like oh my god you're going over to the dark side <laughs> of course you did you you are like just you were mr cornell you're just so red or whatever so what do you what color red do you think is it cornell red what do you call it yeah it's like carnelian red is what it's called oh oh, yeah. oh that, that nose is way up in the air carnelian red huh you asked me a question i'm giving you an answer yeah. <laughs> yeah. We just called it brown and gold. <laughs> that shows you the disparity in the test scores of which school to get into. And I'm totally kidding. I absolutely love Western. It's the only reason I was able to sign an NHL deal and, and whatever, live out almost my dream. But yeah, that is pretty funny. Brown and gold and carnelian. Hey, eat it, buddy. Hey, actually, you know what? I, I don't really like, I feel like there's so much talk right now about this virus that's going on but i i did want to ask you before we go because it just came back into my head you guys so you guys were like the first team to really cancel their season i feel like just in in reading the news and and watching things online and you know everybody later on got canceled um with all the conference tournaments and and the ncaa tournament and stuff but being that first team that got your season canceled what was that like in your locker room? Because you guys had a chance. You guys are a good team and had a chance to do some pretty cool things in the postseason. So was that pretty tough to to handle, especially being that first team? That and like I'm assuming that you might have even thought that other teams would continue with their season and there would be an ECAC tournament, an NCAA tournament, and stuff. What was that like going through that? Yeah, like as a coach, we kind of saw it coming a little bit from from the outside. Uh, we could see that it was, you know, a lot of stuff was being talked about at Harvard about shutting school down and going online. So um, hearing that and then going and telling the players is two different things. Like when, when we were talking to the guys, just seeing their faces and, and, you know, seeing how disappointed they were, you know, that was, that was, uh, that was really eye opening for me to see like, you know, wow, like they, those guys are devastated in there and it's, it was tough, but um, you know, everyone, everyone was disappointed and, and everyone wants to play and everyone, you know, everyone, uh, had a chance to win and, and we all work hard and all, all the, you know, staffs and, and the players, like, it's, it's worse than losing, right? You being, having something taken away from you. So I think that was the, uh, the, you know, it, it, it sucks, you know? Totally. I mean, I can't even imagine, like I talked to Benny Sire the other day and he was telling me about the, the locker room at, uh, at Cornell, 
you know, them being number one in the country and, and really having a shot at, at winning a national championship this year. And, and I think a lot of the reason because of that, you know, they're a good team for sure and have good players, but just the culture that they had in the buy-in and the relationships that the kids had with each other. Um, you just, sometimes you just have those years where it all kind of comes together, you know? And, and I think this year was certainly one of those years for them, especially since the last couple of years, they've gotten bounced from the NCAA tournament when they thought they had the chance as well. So they really thought that this was kind of their year. And, and he was just telling me that that was a tough room to be in. Like a lot of shears, a lot of tears shed, uh, coaches, players, support staff, you know, everybody like that. And I can't even imagine, dude, like even being a senior right now and getting that taken away from you. I know you guys left after your junior years, but you can, I'm sure, understand like not being able to play college hockey anymore. Like, can you guys even imagine having that ripped away from you? I, it's insane. Ugh. Yeah, and, and it's it sticks and like you. A lot of these schools, like they're not even on campus, so you, you're just going home yeah. too, right? So that's even that's even uh, goes even further with with this. Is like you can't even be around your buddies for for springtime, where you, you actually have some time off and you get to hang out and and, and have your like you know spring. So that's kind of another on top of everything. <clears throat> And since we're talking about this, uh, I don't ever talk about politics or, or religion or anything like that. But like, I, I just want to say, cause I know a lot of, you know, I train a lot of guys and they're all, all chomping at the bit to get back in the gym. Can we get in the gym? Can we get in the gym? But like right now, whether, you know, this thing is as bad as they say it is, or it's not or whatever. Like I read, uh, did you see uh, Mike Commodore's tweet that he said yesterday? Tell by any chance I no. retweeted it. What he said? It said, it said, um, like put this into perspective, you know, our grandfathers got called to war. We're getting called to sit on the couch. Like our grandfathers did their part by going to war to help this country and help the world. Our doing our part is sitting on the couch. So like in, <laughs> in comparison, perspective wise, stay on the F and couch. Like if, if staying home for two weeks of our life will, will stop the spread and save tens of thousands of lives like even if there's a chance that that's the right thing to do, why are people not doing it? If you have to work, make sure you're social di- socially distancing yourself. Stay six feet away from people. Wash your hands. Wear gloves. Cover your face. Like whatever. I'm not trying to put out scientific information, but like especially the guys who are athletes, they want to get in the gym. Good athletes, good people, they find a way. When there's something bad thrown in your face, you find a way. Like find a way to get it done in a safe way and stop the spread of this thing. And let's just all be conservative rather than have like what happened in China and Italy where we're, we're going the opposite way and partying in the streets. And all of a sudden now your grandparents are dead because you assholes are going at the bar. Sorry, I cussed, but it's, it's just, it, it really bothers me right now. Couldn't tell. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's just like, whatever it is, like if it's, if we all yeah. just, settled down and did our part, you know, then all the scientists and doctors are saying it'll slow down. And obviously who knows what's going on, but I just had to say that. Yeah, man. Yeah. Sacrifice a little now. Now Jeff doesn't have to wear a shirt for the entire day, right? (laughs) That's so true. I wear my shirt. 
I wear my shirt more in my apartment when I'm alone than I do when I'm in the gym. It's so weird. It's so funny doing your Instagram live videos that you're doing right now. It's just like there's I, I saw it when I first went on there and you had a shirt on. I was like, not a chance this is gonna be on the entire time. <laughs> no. Dude, I tried. I tried honestly, but I, 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 you know, I love sitting in the sauna every day. I love sweating. I love like getting the toxins out of my body, even though I don't put that many in. And, and I, and I'm like, I'm, so I'm like, I'm going to crank the heat up in here. And every time I do it, then I start leaking and I just moved into this new place, sold my house and I moved into an apartment and I'm like, you know, I don't want to sweat all over the new carpet and I'm leaking. I'm just like, I don't care, whatever. People make fun of me, whatever. I'm doing what I like. And I know it's helping at least quite a few people that are, that are watching my Instagram live workouts every day. So as long as one person gets helped, then I'm cool with it. I love it. Just like, that's Jimmy, it. that's t- just a runaround way to say it. No, I'm just going to take my shirt off for everybody. <laughs> He's so full of crap and he knows it. I, bro, I do, what I, I do what I want. I like to work. And plus, like when you're teaching people who have never, because a lot of people that are doing these workouts that are messaging me saying like, you know, we're doing them, we're doing them, keep putting them up are people that aren't athletes. So it's people that just follow my Instagram or Twitter. And so like when you're teaching somebody how to be in a neutral spine position, someone who's not an athlete has never been taught that. If you're not right next to them and able to show them how to do it, it's really hard, especially when you have like clothes on that are baggy. That's why I got to do it. Tarpless. <laughs> Just rationalizing any way he can. I get yeah, it. I do yeah. get it. That's you, you make it. a convincing argument, yeah. but I don't know. You should I saw, saw stick I saw some of those stick? exercises. What's that, James? Uh, I saw some of those exercises, and I'm, and I'm like, I need a. Uh, Five day training period in order to start. <laughs> the, uh... Oh, they're not that hard. There's always <laughs> you can do it. Uh, I like it. Well, for all the listeners, if you haven't tuned into Jeffrey Levechkio doing his shirtless, semi-shirtless uh, Instagram lives, he is doing a good service to everybody and uh, and showing a lot of people a lot of cool exercises that you can do just on your own to make sure you're staying active and staying healthy with not being able to. Uh... What's that? Free. For free, full free, full free. Uh, well, good part. stuff, guys. Well, this was awesome, James, and we really appreciate you coming on. Uh, keep up the great work with what you're doing. Just take it easy on my Cornell guys when you're playing against them. That's for sure. Um, but uh, hopefully, this thing gets rectified here pretty soon. Nobody really knows how long it's going to take for for everything to get back to normal. But uh, for everybody, be grateful for what you do have. This is a time that uh, you know you're getting some things taken away from you, and when when that happens, it, it really put some perspective into into how grateful you should be for the things that you do have in your life so um that's that's the the mindset that i'm gonna be going through here over the next little bit so we hope you stay happy we hope you stay healthy and safe and uh james this was an awesome episode thanks a lot for coming on man thanks token jeff keep up the good work you guys are doing great it's great to hear uh listen every uh week when you guys put some stuff out Thanks, brother. Stay safe, my man. Yeah, you bet. Yeah.